I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. In today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Ethan Russo, who is a board-certified neurologist, psychopharmacology researcher, and the founder and CEO of Credo Science. He has been studying cannabis and cannabinoids for 24 years and was the medical advisor and medical monitor and study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for clinical trials of Sativex and Epidiolex, which is the first and only FDA-approved prescription CBD used to treat seizures. He is the author and editor of seven books and has published more than 50 peer-reviewed articles. Wow. Today's episode, we discuss the evidence-based benefits of cannabis, especially in relation to gut health, migraines, chronic pain. We talk about dietary and lifestyle factors that actually activate the endocannabinoid system other than using cannabis why you want to have small amounts of THC in your product for the maximum benefits, the importance of choosing a good quality cannabis product and what to look for, and we wrap up talking about the future of cannabis and how you might benefit from using DNA to personalize your cannabis use. Thank you so much for coming on today, Dr. Russo. I'm very excited to to have you. As I mentioned off air, a lot of the research that I've looked into over uh, my career has had your name behind it. And you've been doing this for, you mentioned, 24 years now, the cannabis research. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess it'll be 25 in a couple of months. (laughs) That's incredible. That's incredible. So I'd love to hear um, about how you got interested in medicinal plant research to begin with. Sure. Well, it was a long-term interest. I had uh, been a devotee of a guy named Yule Gibbons stocking the healthful herbs when I was a teenager. Um, But, you know, I had a rather standard medical education and pharmacology background Um, But when I was working as a neurologist after about seven years in Missoula, Montana, um, I really sort of hit a wall in terms of what I thought we could accomplish with difficult patients uh, with seizures or with migraine. Uh, And it occurred to me that I was giving increasingly toxic drugs to my patients with less and less benefit. So I thought there might be a better way, and perhaps that lay in herbal medicine. So um, at the time, I was really interested in migraine. So I wanted to find out where in the world there were the most plants that were used to treat headaches. And like so many other things, it turned out to be the Amazon jungle. (laughs) Uh, So I decided to take some Spanish classes at night and prepare to go on expedition in South America. Uh, And it took me a few years, but I went briefly in 1994 and then for almost three months in 1995, working with the Machiganga tribe on Amazonian Peru 
in Parque Nacional del Manu. Um, and uh, it was really an amazing experience. Um, and it cemented the idea in my mind that I wanted to transition the remainder of my career into medicinal plants. But for some years, um, I incorporated medicinal plants into my practice. On And when I got back in 1996, I quickly became embroiled in the cannabis controversy and began studying that intensively. Um, I published a paper on uh, cannabis and migraine in 1998 in the journal Pain. And uh, at that time, uh, Jeffrey Guy was beginning GW Pharmaceuticals, the first company to pursue pharmaceutical development of cannabis. So I was asked to come on in as, as an advisor, which I did for about five years until they asked me to come on full time um, in 2003. And that was a position I had for 11 years in the development of Sativex and Epidiolex. Uh, the two prescription cannabis-based medicines, uh, which are, well, Epidiolex is available in the U.S. Uh, Sativex is not yet, but is in 30 countries. So. Wow. I, I think as we're heading into the new year and people are setting resolutions, hearing just some of that makes me feel feel like I need to step up my game a little bit here. <laughs> well, uh, you need to be obsessed. Uh, <laughs> who, uh, it's a very, very deep field. Um, and that's one of the things I love about it because it's not just the pharmacology, it's the botany, uh, it's the genetics. Um, it's really, when one studies cannabis, it's very multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little something for everybody. And in my uh, research, that's even led, led me into archaeology, uh, looking at a burial site in Xinjiang in Central Asia Wow. Uh, that had the remains of a shaman from 2,700 years ago with a big cache of uh, cannabis. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. Wow. That is in incredible. You're right. This, this an hour is not enough to, to be picking your brain, but I guess we'll have to work with this for now, and maybe you could come on another episode and we could dive a little bit deeper into that. So can we give the listeners just kind of a brief overview of the endocannabinoid system and, um, you know, what it does in the body? I know for myself as a dietitian, and I know you're obviously a doctor and you can speak to the amount of education that's provided in medical training, but as a dietitian, we were never even made aware that the endocannabinoid system was even a part of the body. Sure. Well, it's a deficiency of medical education in general, I'm afraid. Uh, but to summarize, by the late 1980s, it was unclear what the mechanism of action of cannabis was. A lot of people thought maybe it disturbed cell membranes in the brain like alcohol does, and that's how it worked. Um, but uh, eventually it was understood uh, that there are cannabinoid receptors um, where THC binds, um, and then the search was on for what are called endogenous cannabinoids, endocannabinoids, cannabinoids within, and subsequently two, and then later many more were found uh, a couple of years later. So what we found was that these natural cannabinoids within the body are quite analogous to THC and how they work. Um, and then very rapidly, it was discovered that they are basically 
the um, regulators of every aspect of human physiology and applies to animals as well, of course. Um, so if we're looking at emotion, hunger, um, whether someone needs to vomit or not, uh, seizure threshold, digestion, almost anything you can name, there's a role for the so-called endocannabinoid system to regulate and keep things in balance. The technical term for that is homeostasis uh, from the Greek. Um, but basically, if a system is overactive, the role of the endocannabinoid system is to bring it back down to where it should be. And if a system is underactive, it's to bring the activity back up into the normal range. Um, so I mean, that's it in a nutshell, um, right? And that's good to know, too, because I think, you know, especially with I feel like 2020 was probably the big year of, you know, black market CBD products and people even being open to the use of it medicinally for certain things and alternative medicines. And it was this maybe idea like, like anything else, um, you know, that comes out in the health industry or food industry is, oh, this is a magical cure, or this is going to, you know, make me, you know, be somewhat super heroic, you know, this idea that you just alluded to was, you know, CBD or cannabis in general, the, the constituents of the plant, bring your body back into balance and help your body to do what it should already be doing. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's incredible that all of that is um, something that a plant can help to produce. Now, the endocannabinoid deficiency theory, which is something that, you know, I know a lot of your research was based off of, you know, what are some things that can you, you know, discuss that could bring this system out of balance? Or do we see that it's more genetic or our lifestyle? What, could you speak a little bit to that? Sure. So this is a theory that I first uh, wrote about in 2001 uh, called clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. And this was based on my experience as a neurologist. So as we age, there are a lot of disorders that we attribute, at least in part, to deficiencies of neurotransmitters. So among other things, in Alzheimer's disease, we have a deficiency of acetylcholine, the memory molecule, neurotransmitter in the brain. In Parkinson's disease, there is an underactivity of the dopamine system. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, uh, when treating depression, we try to boost levels of serotonin, which may be deficient, but uh, it's oversimplistic to say that that's the cause of depression. So uh, I thought, well, certainly if these things occur with these three neurotransmitter systems, why would there not be conditions under which there was a deficiency of endocannabinoid function. Um, and if so, what would that look like? Well, I thought that there were three prime candidates for this. And um, they were all disorders that are what are known as clinical diagnoses or diagnoses of exclusion, meaning we don't have blood tests for them. You can't diagnose them with a scan. Uh, we think that there's something wrong, but uh, in some instances, it wasn't exactly clear what was going on, especially chemically. So the three disorders were migraine, again, uh, also irritable bowel syndrome and fibromyalgia. And as it turns out, these three have a lot in common. They're all what are called hyperalgesic states, meaning that there seems to be pain where there shouldn't be. We look at the tissues, they, they're fine. 
So there's not an explanation totally for the pain. Um, they additionally um, uh, are comorbid conditions, meaning that one or another may appear in a given individual over the course of their lifetime. In other words, there's a susceptibility uh, to having two or even all three. Um, uh, additionally, the, um, there are... Uh, Conditions where can cannabis seems to help. Uh, a mm -hmm. lot of people with them see benefit. Uh, so it made sense to me that uh, these three could be representative of what I was calling clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. So I started delving into the literature, and there's abundant evidence to support this theory. Uh, so in 2004, I wrote a review article, and again in 2016. And by that time, there was a tremendous amount of information to support this. Uh, including a study in 2007 done in Italy uh, where they did something I'd suggested, but uh, I couldn't do in the United States because couldn't get it through uh, an institutional review board or ethics committee. And that was to look at cerebrospinal fluid from people with migraine and compare it to people who didn't have it. Um, the idea was that there should be less anandamide, one of the endocannabinoids, but they did this in Italy in 2007, and in fact, that turned out to be the case. Uh, subsequently, also, uh, we've got great evidence in humans um, in relation to post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, uh, study was done by Matt Hill and colleagues uh, where they looked at uh, survivors in 9-11, some who had PTSD and some who did not, but they were there. And the differences in the serum levels of the endocannabinoids were remarkable. Um, so this provided objective evidence that there was this thing called clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. And so it's not just some crazy theory. There is evidence behind it. It's been cited in the literature, I, I'm not sure, over 200 times. Um, so um, this is a developing concept that's gaining some traction. Uh, after about 20 years. <laughs> wow. Wow. That must be pretty awesome. remarkable to watch it unfold and to hopefully see the, the trajectory of where that could go and what this could do to really help, um, you know, medicine in the future. And that's, that's incredible that you've contributed contrib significantly to that. That's yeah. Awesome. Well, it's, it's nice to see, but there's still plenty of skeptics out there. Well, I think there always will be. And, um, you know, that's, that's okay. I think, you know, the people that, that are in the research and can see and, and science, right. When I think about it and when you describe it to me, it just makes sense. It just makes sense when we look at all systems of the body and we come back to science, it, it really aligns. And I don't think that we need, um, science always to prove that people have found benefit from the cannabis plant in so many different ways uh, you know, and, and that alone is enough to, to not just write it off. Sure. So now if somebody has an endocannabinoid deficiency, or let's say, you know, you mentioned the migraines, you mentioned irritable bowel syndrome and fibromyalgia, is there, I think the biggest struggle for people is, okay, so what's the right product for me? How should I be using it? Um, you know, what would you advise if you could, you know, obviously we're not giving medical advice on here to individuals, but just in general, based on the research, is there an overarching, you know, kind of general recommendation for how the plant works best? 
Sure. But I wouldn't start with cannabis. Okay. Um, much as I did in my practice, the first thing we talked about was lifestyle adjustments. And that applies to all three of these disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has to do with diet, has to do with exercise, has to do with sleep habits. Um, and you're very familiar with these things, I'm sure. Um, but um, part of the problem is all of these disorders are much more common than than they were in decades past. Um, We can blame the so-called Western diet with its pro-inflammatory kind of profile for a lot of this problem. And that's also contributed uh, to the explosion of autoimmune conditions. Um, And all this is related. Um, But, um, you know, uh, back in my practice, even in the 90s, I was recommending uh, uh, anti-inflammatory diet, uh, use of uh, fermented foods. Um, and that really brings to mind another aspect of this, which is uh, promotion of the use of probiotics and prebiotics. Mm. Uh, so for those not familiar, probiotics are things like yogurt with beneficial bacteria and also in fermented vegetables. Um, prebiotics are uh, non digestible fibers that are sort of the feedstock for the good bacteria. Um, needs to be less familiar foods aside from the onion family, um, but um, acacia, um, acacia fiber, burdock root, things of these sorts. Uh, so these make the good bacteria happy. And um, my theory currently is that um, the gut bacteria, the so-called uh, microbiota, are uh, the primary regulators in the endocannabinoid system in the body. And so if your gut is out of balance, there is a high likelihood uh, that you're going to have a disturbance of the endocannabinoid system and even a deficiency making you more prone to one of these disorders, whether it be PTSD, migraine, uh, irritable bowel, or fibromyalgia. So we start there. Um, In terms of other foods, there are some foods that um, have activity activity with reference to the endocannabinoid system, but there's not a specific diet or specific food, I'd say, that is the key. Uh, To give an example, um, I recommend fish oil for a lot of things that has obvious anti-inflammatory properties, but you can't say that there's a relation between using it and levels in the brain. Um, So that's unclear. Eventually, we get to the point where, um, you know, if someone doesn't resolve their problem or is not improved sufficiently with these lifestyle uh, approaches, then cannabis becomes an option. Um, In this regard, THC, especially in very low doses, um, is often going to be helpful. And this is seen uniformly almost in these disorders. CBD is a useful agent. Um, But um, going back to what you said earlier, it's everywhere. It's overly hyped. Uh, It is not a miracle uh, on its own, particularly. Uh, Make a bold statement. There's nothing that CBD does that won't be enhanced and more effective uh, when at least a tiny amount of THC is present, as in the plant. Um, So I'm not not fond of isolates. 
I think that uh, the appeal in comparison with what a properly constituted cannabis extract can do. Um, plus, I, I would say that there are additional components that are key to this, uh, including the terpenoids, the aromatic compounds in cannabis. On uh, a great example there is uh, the agent called caryophylline, uh, which doesn't look like any, anything like CBD or THC, but is a cannabinoid in its own right, because it works on something called CB2, the cannabinoid receptor 2, which is a non-psychoactive receptor that's important in the gut, um, also an immune function and inflammation, uh, but doesn't cause any kind of intoxication uh, if a drug hits it and not CB1, where THC is uh, active. Wow. So I really respect the fact that you brought up the lifestyle and the diet as being the predominant way to address any sort of, um, you know, inflammation in the body with, in my practice, my, my focus is gut health. And, you know, you talk about being obsessed with something, the gut microbiome is definitely where my obsession lays. And, you know, there is, uh, you know, there's a lot of emerging research and it is a difficult area of research, but, you know, I talk with a lot of clients or potential clients who will say to me, you know, I'm really interested in CBD, like, you know, do you think I should try it? And people don't like when I ask them, well, okay, so what's your diet like? Or, you know, what is your exercise or movement like? Because they want to just be able to take something and have that be the, you know, the fix, the quick fix and the American, the American way. And as you mentioned, there are um, incredible aspects of our diet, like those omega-3 healthy fats that, uh, you know, I think there's no surprise that not only can that activate the endocannabinoid system, but they make their way into the digestive tract into a place where it can help promote reducing inflammation. And, you know, there's, there's the option if you don't like high fat fish, like, you know, personally, I love sardines. I love salmon. I love all those, you know, high omega-3 fish. But for people that don't like that, there are good high-quality supplements out there that people can take if they're not interested in that. And then you mentioned the the different compounds and things like herbs and spices, you know, things like black pepper and cinnamon and basil and lavender. Um, I've found in the research that those are rich in that, um, the beta-caryophylline that you mentioned, is that correct? Yes. Okay. So those are all things that people could incorporate into their routine. Um, black pepper, sprinkling that on some food or um, cinnamon, getting a good high quality cinnamon would be a great option, adding it to things like oatmeal. And then I've also read um, that compounds in cacao and turmeric, have you, um, you know, could you mention how those could be beneficial in terms of our um, cannabinoids that are naturally sure. produced in the body? Yeah, uh, some time ago, there's some publicity to the effect that uh, there was anandamide, uh, the endogenous cannabinoid in chocolate. There's not. However, there, are, <laughs> there are other compounds uh, that do modulate the endocannabinoid system. So if people needed another excuse to eat chocolate, there you go. But, um, you know, preferably it should be one of the high cacao, uh, less sugar type varieties. Um, yeah. So yeah, it can be a health food, but not to overdo. Um, uh, remember, not for dogs, toxic for dogs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there's that uh, chocolate. What was the other one? The other one was turmeric or the, oh, the compound sure. curcumin. Yeah. Uh, turmeric. 
This is a really difficult topic. The problem with curcumin felt to be the active ingredient in turmeric is it binds with everything. Mm. So it's really difficult in studying the literature to know where it's really active. However, we know certain things. Um, certain digestive cancers are very rare among people that use turmeric extensively, say in India. Um, and I, I take it myself personally uh, each day. I do think it has a role. Um, it's really a bit unclear, uh, again, where the activity really lies. Um, and uh, it's tough to ferret out. You can read a lot about it and still be unsure. Um, I do feel that it's it's beneficial and particularly in cancer prevention. Well, it makes me feel better to hear that you take it, especially given your extensive background with research and your medical background. I I I use the um, the the Thorn Labs curcumin um, supplement that I take. Um, do you recommend taking it with black pepper? I've I've read that that enhances the benefit systemically. Or yeah, me well. Um, I put black pepper on everything. So, <laughs> so you're all set then. <laughs> sure. um, you know, if I had to name one food that had the most activity besides cannabis, of course, uh, on the endocannabinoid system, it would be black pepper because there are three different components that work uh, directly or indirectly on the endocannabinoid system. All right. So everybody that's listening, you heard it. Go start adding black pepper to your food to enhance the benefits of your endocannabinoid system. If someone's interested in this topic, in particular plants in the endocannabinoid system, there is a, an article by that title um, that was in uh, Trends in Pharmacological Sciences a few years back. Uh, all of my writings are available on at ethanrusso.org. Um, so there are links there because it's my personal website um, there shouldn't be any issues with copyright. Uh, it's all for educational purposes. There's no firewall or charge or anything. So, um, yeah, the plants in the endocannabinoid system is available there. Awesome. I'll be sure to link that in the show notes as well so that people can access it quite easily. Great. Now, things that have negative effects on the endocannabinoid system, you discussed, you know, the Western typical standard American diet, which tends to be much higher in omega-6 fats. For those who are listening, I did a whole episode on omega-6 and omega-3s. But in general, uh, things that are negative impacts on the endocannabinoid system, the Western standard American diet, especially with regards to the types of fats that are more pro-inflammatory, um, and then alcohol, pesticides, and plastics. I've read, um, you know, I've talked about those in terms of hormone health and gut health and all that. But in general, it sounds like those can also have a negative effect on our endocannabinoid system. Yeah, absolutely. So the two things would be inactivity um, and excess carbohydrates leading to obesity, which is endemic in uh, West um, you know, this is evident to anybody who travels outside the U.S. or Western Europe. People just aren't obese in uh, parts of the world that we may see as uh, disadvantaged even. Um, but this explains the explosion um, in diabetes type 2, 
in Alzheimer's disease, in autoimmune conditions. Um, what happens in, in obesity, and we mean real actual obesity, um, is actually an excess of uh, endocannabinoid function. Mm -hmm. So there can be too much of a good thing. Um, balance is always the key, but um, you know uh, it's interesting because cannabis is still the solution. Um, uh, contrary to what a lot of people might, might think, uh, if we look at people who use cannabis regularly, they tend to be lean. Uh, and you might wonder, given that everybody knows about the munchies, uh, but in fact, um, THC promotes a better microbiome balance um, and uh, actually helps uh, to reduce the risk of uh, gaining weight, uh, of being obese. Additionally, other components in cannabis, specifically cannabidiol and tetrahydrocannabivarin, um, have a role in allaying hunger and combating some of the biochemical signs of the metabolic syndrome associated with obesity. Uh, so yeah, it can be part of the solution and not the problem. Wow, that's incredible. Now, do you mind me asking, do you use cannabis in any way in your daily practice? Or is that something that you well, prefer not to share? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not in practice, haven't been since 2003. I still consult with doctors and patients around the world all the time. Um, my personal use, uh, people would be shocked. Um, <laughs> let's just say extremely rare and for a reason. Um, yeah. So, no, I mean, it was different in the past. Um, I uh, was a child of the 60s, uh, <laughs> a bit of a late bloomer in, in my peer group. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I definitely had a history of experimentation, you know, in high school and, and really enjoyed the calming effect of it. And now every once in a while, you know, I, I do offer a lab certified, you know, certificate of analysis product to clients. Um, and so I, I really stress the importance of making sure that you're getting a really good quality product. And I know this is something that you speak about a lot of making sure that the product that you're getting is being tested. It's being, um, you know, quality assured that you're getting what's actually in the product. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that CBD alone, which is what a CBD isolate is, is not um, ideal for what people are looking for. And it sounds like it would be almost a waste of money to go for a CBD isolate because it sounds like you'd have to take much higher amounts of it to receive the benefit versus taking a full spectrum product, which does contain at least a trace amount of THC in it. Yeah, generally that's going to be true. And I'd emphasize a point that you were making. Um, CBD is not potent. Medically, that means that the number of milligrams you need to do something are a lot higher than they would be for other cannabinoids like THC or CBG. Mm. Um, and you know, most products that are available have relatively low amounts and really can't um, give value uh, for the money expended. Um, yeah, it's a problem. Um, the, the industry is not regulated in a way that I think is advantageous to consumers. Um, it's very difficult for the consumer to have an idea about what's good and what's not. Uh, if people are uh, interested in dosing recommendations, uh, there's another paper at the website 
that I did with Caroline McCollum called uh, Cannabis Dose Administration. Um, and it, it'll have a lot of information there that's based somewhat on our experience with patients, but also published studies in humans. Um, so it's not just theory. There's plenty of data uh, to support the recommendations there. Excellent. I, I look forward to um, sharing that with my audience as well, because I, I do get a lot of questions about that. And my typical recommendation is to just always start with the lowest amount, you know, of dosage and slowly work your way up and, you know, do it in a very slow and controlled manner. But I, I would love to, to share that with them. And I think it would be very useful as well. Sure. Now there's many methods of administration, right? So you've got, you know, inhalation, you've got the, the vaporizer pens out there, you've got um, CBD oils and, you know, full spectrum oils or creams and things like that. Um, is there one in the research that has been shown to be more beneficial or that you would recommend or one that you would avoid? Sure. Well, I don't recommend smoking for anything. Uh, in a condition where a rapid response is needed, uh, vaporization uh, would be an, ad, an advantage over smoking. Uh, but that's not the situation uh, for most patients who need cannabis uh, to treat their condition. Usually we're dealing with a chronic condition. Uh, and for that, uh, either oral mucosal administration in the mouth uh, or with something that is taken orally is going to be best. Um, first of all, this is a slower, uh, longer lasting contour, uh, pharmacokinetic so-called. So um, dosing is gonna work two or three times a day for a chronic condition, rather than with inhalation where, you know, it's necessary to redose every few hours at minimum. Um, and uh, there are no lung issues with using these other uh, preparations. Um, and again, um, there will be less likelihood of intoxication too. Um, being so rapid, inhalation is going to lead in many instances to overshooting. In other words, getting high rather than uh, using just enough uh, to treat the symptoms at issue. Mm. And also, you know, the, the issue of the additives and things like that, that people are adding to vape pens. You know, I've seen people who are saying, you know, well, I'm just I'm vaping and it's just CBD and it's okay, but it's also like vanilla flavored or, you know, what, what have you. And, you know, just like food, you know, there's additives and preservatives and things like that. And, you know, pesticides. And if you're not getting a good quality product, then I would imagine that that would actually negate the benefits that you're looking for out of the product itself and, and potentially just also wasting your money on something. Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot about, you know, uh, you know, the digestive tract and the gut microbiome and the role that, you know, cannabis can have in digestive disorders. I work with a lot of patients who are diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, as well as inflammatory bowel diseases, such as Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And I've had several clients who use cannabis for symptomatic management, mostly of these conditions for things like pain and inflammation and I'd love to understand, or for the clients, to, uh, the listeners to understand how, you know, this, this, this is the case for this to be able to be used for symptom management. Um, I know you mentioned the endocannabinoid system and how that works, but maybe on a little bit of a deeper level. Sure. 
Okay, well, I like to say that the gut and the brain speak the same language. And what that means is uh, any neurotransmitter you find in the gut is also in the brain. Um, so there's an intimate relationship there. The endocannabinoid system is responsible for two of the main functions in the gut, secretion and propulsion. So secretion is how much water is in there. Uh, and again, this can work both ways. Cannabis was one of the first effective treatments for cholera, a severe form of diarrhea in the 19th century. This was discovered in India. Um, but it also, you know, if things are too dry, it can help. Um, propulsion is how fast things move. Uh, normal is neither too fast nor too slow. Uh, both IBS and IBD, inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis may, can be associated with diarrhea as well as severe pain, cramping, and, and bloating. Um, all of these uh, can be allayed uh, by small doses of THC. Um, and uh, many people with these disorders find benefit with cannabis, again, preferably in this instance with um, an oral preparation. Uh, again, THC is gonna help the microbiome balance, but that should be coupled uh, with probiotics and prebiotics. Um, so uh, in general, we can say that THC is gonna provide very good symptomatic relief. So for the pain, uh, the frequency of stools, um, uh, all those associated symptoms, THC is necessary. CBD alone is not going to do it. Unfortunately, the few studies that have been done with our, uh, inflammatory bowel diseases in humans so far with cannabis have been substandard, mainly observational or inadequate dosing. There was a study uh, from Israel where they used five milligrams of CBD twice a day and, you know, I just hit myself in the head. Why bother the time uh, and money that was wasted on this? Uh, There's just no chance that that could produce the, the desired result. The role of CBD would be twofold in this instance. One is not what people think, and it would be to reduce associated side effects of THC. And this is well established. It counteracts the munchies. It reduces anxiety and uh, rapid heart rate that can happen with too much THC. Mm -hmm. So it extends the therapeutic index of THC, meaning you can use a higher dose without side effects. The second thing it can do um, is um, possibly, and again, this is gonna require higher doses of CBD. It may be disease modifying. Uh, since both Crohn's and, um, and ulcerative colitis are autoimmune diseases um, related to problems with a thing called tumor necrosis factor alpha, we know that uh, CBD counteracts this. Um, so it has a role in those and other autoimmune conditions to be, be disease modifying. Mm -hmm. um, what the exact dose is, uh, unclear, but it's not five milligrams twice a <laughs> yeah. day. Um, so ideally, a full-spectrum product uh, that would have THC, higher doses of CBD, and additionally, caryophylline. So again, this is the one, the terpenoid uh, that 
works on the CB2 receptor, which is very dense uh, in the gut. So it has a major regulatory role in digestive function. Um, but something that uh, had those ingredients, maybe a little linalool uh, to reduce anxiety that's part and parcel of these disorders, there's nothing that gets people upset faster than when the gut isn't working right. Uh, talk about ruining your day. Um, <laughs> Uh, I know that you and uh, your colleagues on nutrition are all too familiar with those. Yeah, in my practice, I, I tell my clients, I say there's never TMI, and I want all the details when it comes to your bowel movements. And the reason for that is because it's it gives us a, a very good indicator of how your body system is working. And if your digestive system is not healthy, then you know, we have to be concerned about the other aspects of the body because a point that you alluded to was the autoimmune disease and the, the significant rates at which we're seeing autoimmune disease. And that, that's really just the inflammation in the body. And, and what I try to stress, you know, I'm in my um, late 20s and, you know, talking about autoimmune disease sometimes or talking about future, you know, health implications isn't exactly the sexiest thing. And that is unfortunate because if we don't start thinking about these things now, if we don't start caring about our gut health, if we don't start caring about, you know, cardiovascular health, then down the road, we are going to be the people that are, you know, suffering from autoimmune conditions that could have been um, potentially prevented by taking our health seriously at this stage in our life. Um, because these are the types of things that really matter. Sure. Yeah, on that score, I'd, I'd like to make a point, which is that um, these are considered lifelong conditions or incurable, and I uh, would hedge on, on saying that's true, um, because these are things that can go into prolonged remission, and they are eminently treatable with the right regimen. Uh, and if somebody has is on a good regimen and they've had no disease activity for 10 years, Fine, don't call it a cure, but um, it wouldn't be fair to say that that person, you know, has active uh, whatever disorder. Um, and clearly, uh, this can happen. The same label gets put on fibromyalgia, but clearly some people get over it. Mm. There are people that used to have it that don't now. Um, um, you know, so that there are a lot of misconceptions about this. And and. I think the belief mindset is something that that can hold us back. And this is not, um, you know, not necessarily to fault the medical system in any way, shape or form, but it can be challenging when you <laughs> when you receive a diagnosis, you see that as your endpoint and your belief system of can I get better? Well, you go on Google and you see, well, autoimmune disease or, you know, X, Y, and Z, IBS, you, you know, the symptom is just, you just manage, you just manage your symptoms versus, you know, I have clients come to me and this is how I personally was able to find um, resolve with my own digestive issues was I didn't take that, you know, diagnosis for, uh, you know, a, a stop sign at my journey. I said, nope, there's got to be more to this. I did my digging and that's now what I help clients do. And, you know, before even, you know, coming to me, they, I mean, when they come to me, they'll say, I, I'm not going to accept that as a diagnosis. So I think just the belief in general that, 
you can improve your health and, you know, you can put your diagnosis into remission is, is step number one is knowing that you can and believing that you have the power to do that uh, because of everything that you just said. Sure. That's powerful. Wow. So in terms of safety concerns, I mean, we definitely talked about, you know, quality being really important and not just going into a store and purchasing a product you know, I think a lot of people, I kind of, I made a joke this year about, um, you know, New Year's resolutions and made a joke that we should continue to social distance from gas station CBD. Cause you know, you walk by any store or gas station and you're going to find CBD or, you know, whatever it is you, they add it to coffee. Now they're adding it to sodas and cocktails. You know, what are your thoughts on that? And how would you advise uh, individuals to be more conscious consumers? Uh, what I'd say is take medicine because you need medicine, eat food because you want to eat. <laughs> um, I, I just don't see the point. Um, plus, you know, we're always concerned about dosing and administration. Um, if, if your medicine is in something that tastes good, what is to say that you're not going to overdo it? Now, that's great for the company that's selling this stuff, but it's not necessarily great for the consumer. Um, so I... You know, I won't be uh, trying to promote uh, cannabis drinks. Um, you know, it's not to say that they're all bad, but most are probably unnecessary and some are bad. <laughs> and a lot of them too, right? They're using isolate, isolate CBD, right? Sure. So you're not going to get a, a full spectrum product when you go to your local cafe and they're adding it to your tea because th that would be, you know, there's some legal concerns, of course, with that and um, quality control issues. Yeah. yeah, people should also be discriminating about uh, the source of their material, you know, uh, is this backed by a company that's edging into this industry from uh, the alcohol industry or uh, the uh, nicotine industry? You know, it really makes you wonder. Yeah. Um, some of those people don't have the best motivation. Right. Yeah, it's important. Is the person getting paid to to get the consumer to buy? And that's that's an important note as well. I, I had a lot of people asking me to start selling gummies and chocolates and things like that. And it just it doesn't align with personally my view of how medicine should be treated as as you mentioned, if it tastes really good and what are the additive ingredients in it and are we, you know, canceling out the benefits of the quality. So my last point that I wanted to make was actually, it's ironic that it came up because you just mentioned that this is something that you're recently involved in, but the interest of DNA testing for individual cannabis therapy, and I know we don't have too much time left, but what are your thoughts on this? Um, I think, you know, in, in this, the, the health industry, we're all going more towards personalized and individualized medicine. And so is this legit? Is this something that um, we can start doing is using someone's DNA to, to figure out if, how to tailor a product to them or if they would benefit from it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's part of the trend of individualized medicine. Um, full disclosure, uh, I'm a scientific advisor in Endocana Health that does this kind of testing. Um, what I've seen is that some of the results are very interesting are certain genes that have been associated uh, with problems with the endocannabinoid system. 
Um, and there are also genes that are associated with susceptibility to certain disorders, uh, like uh, anxiety is one example. Uh, but the idea behind this kind of testing is to uh, see if there are particular traits that would favor or disfavor a uh, certain kind of cannabis preparation. Um, and uh, the results are, are often presented in a way that gives the consumer choices or at least an idea of what to look for in their local community, uh, something that might be uh, better for the condition that they're treating. Um, so I, I think this is a developing area. Uh, it looks very promising. There isn't always going to be a one-to-one -one relationship between doing testing and having the answer. Um, in medicine, there's usually not one single answer, but rather a variety of choices and approaches uh, that hopefully are going to uh, be beneficial in the long run. That's, that's very helpful. In, in regards to DNA testing or gut health testing for, um, you know, personalizing someone's diet, you know, there was a lot of nuances there and people believing that, you know, we can do a test and tell you exactly what you should eat based on the composition of your gut microbiota. And, you know, we need to remember that, you know, your gut bacteria are constantly changing. You could, you know, change your diet in, in a day or two days, 24 hours, your gut bacteria can be completely different. And, um, you know, remembering gene expression, right? So the gene expression, the, the idea that we can actually change the expression of certain genes through the things that we eat or our lifestyle practices, our stress and um, the toxins we're exposed to are all things to consider for anybody who's looking to um, go into any sort of personalized testing. Uh, and I talk a lot about this um, with regards to the gut microbiome. Very good. So if you could give the listeners three main takeaways um, for, you know, whether it be cannabis use or um, as a consumer, you know, any, maybe somebody who's skeptical, um, what are, what would be your three takeaways? Uh, well, safety has to be number one. Um, people at point of uh, purchase need to know what they're getting, uh, what its composition is, not just the THC and CBD content, uh, but uh, terpenoid profile. Uh, they should know uh, whether it's been tested for heavy metals, pesticide residues, solvents, et cetera. Uh, so that's number one. Second is uh, proper dosing. You've hit on this already. The adage we use is start low and go slow. Uh, it's, uh, what I like to tell people is, look, you have a chronic condition. We want you to get better, but we're going to do this slowly and properly because if someone overdoses on first contact, you may have lost that for that person their best opportunity to have something that's going to help them. Uh, so always better to underdose than overdose. You, you will get there eventually. Um, um, and third, um, uh, again, something we touched on earlier is uh, full-spectrum products. Um, I'm a firm believer in what's called the entourage effect, the synergy of ingredients. Uh, so I'm not uh, a fan of isolates. I think that uh, plant does it better. Uh, and um, I'm not looking to get my medicine, at least cannabis-based medicine, from yeast or bacteria. Um, I think it should come from the plant. 
I love those. Those were excellent takeaways. Thank you. Anything that you're working on recently or that you see in terms of the future of plant medicine or anything that you're really excited about? Well, uh, again, I'm very excited about uh, other plants in the endocannabinoid system. To give one example, uh, kava, the South Seas drink uh, that's well known as uh, an anti-anxiety agent. Um, recently, it was shown that yanganin uh, works on the CB1 receptor. There are other examples in nature, um, but that and uh, you know the interaction of plants with uh, the gut microbiome uh, are areas that are very fertile for future research. Excellent. Well, I look forward to continuing to follow your work, and I'm just so grateful for everything that you've shared today. And just for being here, this has been a really fun conversation. And I hope that maybe you'll consider coming on in the future and even discussing further topics because I have so much more to ask you. <laughs> that would be great. And the last question, which is the most fun, of course, is what is your favorite childhood memory with food? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there are a lot. Um, I'm going to give a different answer than I usually do because uh, this this came up this past week. There used to be a Cantonese restaurant in downtown Boston called Yihang Gui. Um, my father, uh, who's passed several years ago, but um, he kept a little card uh, in uh, Chinese in his wallet uh, with what we wanted to order when we would go there. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a real banquet of uh, great food. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this that. is decades ago in the fifties and early sixties. It's, it's not there any longer, I'm afraid. Oh, that's too bad. That's such a fun memory. I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on Dr. Russo. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise with all of us. It truly means the world. I had a lot of fun chatting with you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, Dr. Russo, I'll talk to you later. It is the new year, so I am taking some new clients starting next week. And if you are interested in working one-on-one -on -one with me to improve your gut health and get to the root cause of why you aren't reaching your health goals, you can go to nutritionrewired.com, which is where you can also find my lab-tested CBD oil and my book, Rewire Your Gut, filled with delicious recipes to help you start the new year. Thanks again for tuning in and don't forget to share the health.